The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Um, I have a student who came to me and said, you know, I think it's so wonderful that when you teach this poem, you tell us it's your favorite poem. And I thought, oh, yes, I do do that. And he said, I think it's so wonderful that when you read it out loud, you cry. And I thought, I cry when I read this poem out loud (laughs) because I hadn't been aware of that at all. And so I realized that apparently when I've been reading this poem aloud to my students, I've been choking up or tearing up slightly in a way that's visible to them, even though it was not visible to me. That's Professor Anahid Nersessian talking about one of the poems that puts tears in her eyes and a catch in her throat. We'll hear what poem she's referring to, along with her longtime love for the poetry of John Keats, her background as a literature devotee, and her new book, Keats's Odes, A Lover's Discourse, which looks at Keats's six great odes through a personal prism. That's all coming up today on The History of Literature. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Jack Wilson. So we have Mr. John Keats once again. We did a double episode on him last year, was it? Or last year or the year before? It's all kind of a blur now. But those episodes are in our archives, which you can check out if you'd like. I think we dove into Ode on a Grecian Urn and Ode to a Nightingale. Are those the two that got to our guest? We will see. Hey, our guest today is wonderful, and so is her book. If you like the podcast, you will like this book. This is a professor who, well, I'm sure she can write in an academic style full of theory and so on. She's obviously smart like that. She went to Yale. She got a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago. She taught at Columbia and now teaches at UCLA. Her books are in Harvard University Press and the University of Chicago Press. Those are some heavy hitters. But you know how in the you know how in the movies when they have a professor, maybe it's played by some Anthony Hopkins type or some Nicole Kidman type, Emma Thompson, one of those brainy actors. And there's a moment when they break through and remember their love of literature and they try to explain to someone just why it was that they love reading and, and love these dusty old books and why they're not such dusty books after all. They're full of life and love and happiness and despair and joy. And the books speak to us across the centuries. And we find ourselves communing with the soul of someone from long ago in a land far away. Well, this is that point in the movie. This is that kind of book. Not the, not the kind that sends an academic on his or her way up the ladder of getting tenure and so on. But the kind of book where the academic, steeped in literature takes a moment to explore and expand and deliver the good news of these favorite works of hers to the rest of us. She goes inside her own mind, her own life, and it's a fascinating life. She grew up as a woman in New York City, a woman of Iranian and Armenian descent, and she fell in love with romantic poetry. And these essays are the result. They've been called, quote, demanding, 
generous, precise, utopian, and unfailingly brilliant, end quote. Excellent stuff. So, by Keats's letters, by his collected works of poetry, and by this book. And enjoy your spring. Compliments of your old friend Jack Wilson. And your summer. And why not autumn, of course. You'll still be reading these then. You can read them more than once. And why not winter, too, for that matter? Keats, Springs, Eternal. So, let's do this. We'll take a quick break. Come back with this week's Science News of the Week, and then a conversation with our lover of Keats, Anahid Nersessian, after this. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, let's start with our science news of the week. Do we have a anything special for this? Any theme song or anything? News from the world of science. Okay, I guess that I guess that'll do. Here we have uh, news from the world of science. Headline: Scientists have taught spinach to send emails. That's our headline. Sounds crazy, right? This is actually a real story in actual newspapers. First line. Quote, it may sound like something out of a futuristic science fiction film, but scientists have managed to engineer spinach plants which are capable of sending emails. End quote. I know, I know, you're dubious. It's hard to believe, but here it is, right here in the newspaper. It's all thanks to those brainiacs at MIT. The article goes on to explain that these scientists have taught spinach how to detect things in the soil around them using nanotechnology, and they then Wi-Fi that information to email accounts so that scientists can monitor the chemical composition of the soil. Now, some of you might be astonished to hear this news, that spinach can send emails. 
And I can see where you're coming from. I'm not surprised that you're astonished. It's an incredible story. However, I myself was not surprised at all, as it happens. But that's probably because even before I read this article, I was onto this. This news kind of came to me, in fact, unexpectedly. I've been corresponding with some spinach for some time now. Maybe a year ago it started. You know, I think MIT might want to check their parental controls. Or maybe it's vegetal controls, whatever they call it, because their spinach isn't just limiting itself to sending back dull technical information about the contents of the soil to their scientific handlers. These little green guys are in need of distraction, just like any other living thing. In fact, if anything, based on their emails to me, I'd say they seem to be even more in need of distraction than human beings would be, which I guess makes sense. And so, they seem to be roaming outside their mission a bit, and that's how they wound up landing messages in my inbox. Let me tell you the story. It started with an email that I got subject. Why? I am spinach. Farmer, listen to podcast in field. What is a Jack Wilson? What is literature? Oh, my. That was it. My heart skipped. Spinach? What? I thought it must be a prank. I am spinach? What the heck? So I wrote back. Dear spinach, hello. I am Jack Wilson. I hope you are doing well, growing and thriving. Best wishes, Jack. Of course, I thought this was a prank, a hoax. But I thought I would respond anyway, see where it led. Maybe it was someone in need. Maybe someone with some issues. Someone who needed to hear from me. That was my email. Upbeat, positive. The reply came quickly. Subject, why? To Jack Wilson. I am spinach. Farmer, listen to podcast in field. Are you vegetable? How you can talk, where you learn to do it. I only know can to do email. What is literature? That was it. That was all it said, so I wrote back. Dear Spinach, I learned to talk long ago, back when I was just a little sprout, lol. As you surmised, I am a human being, on my better days anyway, smiley face. I think you know what literature is. If not... I hope you spend some more time listening to the podcast. That should tell you. And they're all free. I thought about including a link to the Patreon account, but that seemed a little crass. And of course, I still thought it was a prank. I didn't know. This would wind up on the internet, someone making fun of me for engaging in this. So I tried to keep things, you know, not too embarrassing. Then I got another email. Subject. Why? To Jack Wilson. I am spinach. Someday you eat me. What is literature? That was it for that email. After that, I emailed as best I could, in spite of my hesitation. 
thinking I was probably wasting my time or setting myself up for something. I tried to define literature as one would to a plant or someone pretending to be one. I can tell you it's not easy. I've never tried to explain literature to a plant before. It is difficult. I tried to talk about works where characters wait around, thinking a a plant might identify with that. I mentioned Beckett, of course. I talked about the importance of sunshine and wind in whatever books I could think of, and the recurring love of nature, even some children's books where plants came to life, though I didn't mention that those books always kind of creeped me out. I talked about works of literature that encourage us to grow and fulfill our destiny. But really, come on, what do you say to spinach? How do you make sense of a topic like literature? What does a phrase like books that are full of heart mean to an edible plant known for its flat, crinkly leaves? I did my best. I couldn't shake an idea that haunted me. Someday you eat me, said Spinach, and it's true. I eat spinach. I couldn't get over that. I don't know how I can stop. I don't know if I should stop. But how could I mention this to Spinach? I've never tried to explain literature to my prey before. Who would listen to a predator on such a subject? So I wrote an email and then another, and then another, trying to explain literature, my heart breaking every single time. Literature is very human-centric, it turns out, but why? I used to be kind of proud of that, as it seemed to give literature a, a kind of importance, even a nobility, to be so focused on humanity, but now it seemed a little narrow, even barbaric. I wrote things like, Dear Spinach, I'm sure I won't ever eat you, ha-ha, even if I ate nothing but spinach for the rest of my life. The odds are astronomical that I'd be eating you in particular. I'll probably be eating some spinach from a hundred miles away, ha-ha. But the laughter and bonhomie were forced. Other times I would get more philosophical and say, Dear Spinach, I couldn't sleep last night. But the good news is I had a thought. Maybe you won't be eaten at all. Maybe you're going to be used for another purpose. Chopped up and turned into vitamins or medicine. Wouldn't that be better? And then I'd think, but no. Vitamins and medicine get ingested too. I hadn't really thought of that. And the chopping up sounded brutal. So I added, you'd be helping people. And then I deleted part of that. So it just said, You'd be helping. And then I wrote, Or maybe you'll just wither and die right where you are and rot back into the soil. Maybe you'll spoil and make someone sick. Is that what you want? Then I deleted the entire message. Hadn't spinach suffered enough? I tried different approaches. Dear spinach, I wrote, Can you feel solidarity with other living things? It might help you to get through hard times. And, dear spinach, can you admire the universe? Do you feel a spiritual presence around you, hovering, looking out for you? That can be a gift. And, dear spinach, it's winter now, 
and it's very cold. Do you have everything you need? Is there a way I can get you something to help you make it through? Tiny clothes, perhaps? Or a wee blanket, woven from yarn or threads? Maybe a little matchstick that you could use as a heater? And, dear spinach, are you lonely? I'm lonely, too. We have that in common, don't we, spinach? Does it help you to know that? Do you have a TV? And finally, dear spinach, have you ever been in love? I hope so. I... But I had to stop there, because I was crying so hard, I couldn't see the screen. I got no response to any of these. And then... I ran across the article above about the MIT scientists, and I knew that this had not been a prank or a hoax. This MIT spinach, given the power to send emails, needed something more out of life, and somehow the spinach had gotten my email address, thanks, I guess, to a farmer who listens to the podcast out in the field, and the spinach had reached out. The least I could do was take them seriously. That night, after I read the article, my wife made dinner, a beautiful lentil soup, perfect for a cold and wintry day. It was a work of art, a great gift for myself and my family, and yet I could only stare at my bowl, wondering about the carrots and the potatoes, how it must have felt when they were chopped to pieces and dropped into the pot and boiled had that felt like a blessing? Did it feel like the culmination of their journey, the trip to their great reward, or was it a horrifying surprise? What had they known about their future? Had anyone bothered to prepare them for their fate? My youngest son, the pickiest eater, is going through a growth spurt now, which makes him devour things like lentil soup, so rich with the protein and nutrients that a human being requires. Without these nutrients, we cannot grow. Without this fuel, we cannot laugh or love or read literature. Without them, there is no energy. Without them, there is no life. My son doesn't appreciate this. As usual, he separated out anything green and leafy, and by the time he was done, his bowl was empty, except for the slug of wilted greens he had dragged to the edge of his bowl. My wife hollered at him to finish his food, but I could only think of the spinach, perched up there on the edge, surviving for the moment. And so I intervened. No, no, I said, it's his destiny. He needs to be free. His destiny? Free? What are you talking about? My wife said. She had no idea I was not talking about my son, but the spinach itself. Finish your food she said to my son, who sighed. They did this every night, and he knew he could not win. But my mind was elsewhere. No! I shouted, batting the spoon out of my son's hand as he brought the spinach toward his open mouth. He's suffered enough, damn it! Suffered? My wife said. Damn it! Are you insane? No! 
I cried. I'm compassionate. I grabbed my son's plate and ran into the kitchen. I looked at the garbage can and then the garbage disposal, the natural homes for this little green slug, and I felt awful. No, no, I cried. Not for this one. Not for my friend. I took the spinach outside to liberate it. But what then? Dump it onto the snow? Put it on a post and let it be devoured by some varmint? Bury it in the soil? In a wild moment, I thought about bringing it back inside, cradled in the warmth of my cupped hand and setting it gently on my computer keyboard to see if it would type me a note. Like old times, spinach, just like the way things were. But all this was madness, absolute madness. I was alone in the cold. This spinach couldn't type. And even if it could, who cared? The end was inevitable. It was left to me, alone under the night sky, left to me to find compassion in a heartless world. This hurts me, I said, raising my leafy friend above my head. I am in pain. And then I opened my mouth to the spinach, and I chewed and swallowed and lifted my tear-stained face to the sky. That was delicious, I confessed to the hollow stars above, and the universe stared back at me in empty wonder. That's the science news of the week here on the History of Literature. News from the world of science. News from the world of science here on the History of Literature. We'll be back with Anna Hedner-Sessian and John Keats after this. Okay, joining me now is Anna Hedner-Sessian, an associate professor of English at the University of California, Los Angeles. She's the author of Utopia Limited, Romanticism and Adjustment, and the co-editor of the Thinking Literature series, published by the University of Chicago Press. She's here today to talk about her new book, Keats's Odes, A Lover's Discourse, which gathers and revisits the six poems that Keats wrote in 1819 that have become known as the Great Odes. Anna Hedner-Sessian, welcome to the History of Literature. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be talking to you. So you write that your book is a love story between me and Keats. But before we turn to your book, let's back up a little bit and talk about who you are and how you came to write this book. So let's begin with your childhood. And where did you grow up? I grew up in New York City mm. in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. So uh, I remember, you know, a New York that was much rougher than New York is now. Mm. And yeah. when I was yeah. And when I was a teenager, I think if I have my dates right, when I was a teenager, Rudy Giuliani became the mayor and immediately militarized the city. And so it was became it was very different when I was a teenager than it was when I was young. Yeah. So I, lived, I have I had the experience of two very, very different cities. Mm -hmm. Were you in the village or Upper West Side, Upper East Side or in the, one up, of the other boroughs? I grew, up, I grew up on the Upper East Side, so uh -huh. not not too far from Central Park, um, but in an in an area that was sort of mid-gentrification when I was living there with my parents. And my parents still live there. They live in the house that I grew up in, which was a very ramshackle house that they purchased for, you know, like a price that would make you weep. Because yeah. 
in the 1970s. And um, it was really falling down. So my whole childhood was my parents, you know, doing this kind of weekend warrior stuff and trying to fix the electricity in the house and, <laughs> you know, almost killing each other and um, falling through the floor and things like that. So it's very beautiful now, but it was a work in progress for about 30 years. Right. And what kind of childhood did you have then growing up in the city? Well, in a lot of ways, it was really privileged and really comfortable. You know, I mean, as mm-hmm. I just said, my I grew up in a house. My parents owned a house and um, financially they did very well. Both of my parents are psychoanalysts. And Hmm. so, yeah. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And they had their offices in our house. So, you know, there were two, there are two entrances and one goes through the kitchen and one goes to a waiting room. And so there was always a stream of patients coming in and out. And my parents are very old fashioned. And so they abided by the old rule that your patients shouldn't know anything about you whatsoever. So it was very important that I not be seen by any of their clientele. So a lot of times I'd have to like kind of skulk around or, you know, hide if somebody else was coming up the stairs. So that was interesting. And, um, but, you know, they were very interested in contemporary art and literature. A lot of their friends were artists and writers. So I spent a lot of weekends dragged, kicking and screaming to galleries and, you know, museums. And now I'm very grateful for that. But at the time, I resented it a lot. So that part of it was great, you know, and and again, very privileged and very comfortable. On the other end of things, my father is um, from Iran and he has you know, an Iranian passport. And, you know, he came to the U.S. in the 1970s. And um, in the 1980s, having an Iranian parent was a quite difficult thing mm, because of yeah. you know, conflict between the U.S. and Iran. So kind of much like it is now, that was a, a really difficult thing for me as a kid. And I got bullied a lot at school, you know, for having a funny name and having a foreign dad. So it was a mixed bag, you know, very, very comfortable on one end and then and very uncomfortable on the other. Yeah. So when you were first describing it with your parents, I was thinking of a Woody Allen movie. Uh, but it, it sounds like it would be kind of a, a a Woody Allen locale, but with completely different characters. Yeah, definitely. Well, in some ways, very different characters. I mean, you know, my parents, because they were psychoanalysts, a lot of their friends were also psychoanalysts. Yeah, so right. a lot of, you know, shrinks kind of sitting around the house and <laughs> chewing the fat. So I grew up around a, a, a very neurotic kind of, <laughs> a very neurotic kind of. Vibe. I'm, I'm very comfortable, you know, in a in a Woody Allen context, I guess. Yeah. So, and speaking of your identity, you've written or said that you were constantly being told that the literature you loved didn't belong to you. So, who was telling you this, and what was their basis for telling you that? You know, in a way that makes it sound what I wrote there makes it sound more direct than it mm. was. Mm-hmm. It, it was a much more implicit message that I got just from the fact that, you know, I never had an English teacher who was, you know, Iranian or, or really who was anything but white and mm-hmm. English, or Western European. And I never read any literature that wasn't um, by white writers until I was in high school. That wasn't how our curriculum worked at the school that I went to. You know, it's very, very conservative, very traditional curriculum. And if I went to, you know, Barnes and Noble, the writers that I saw were not people that had names like mine or, you know, looked like my dad. So it's a really indirect way of absorbing the sense that you're somehow excluded from higher or canonical literary culture. But I think those messages, you know, as kind of indirect as they are, are extremely powerful. And I certainly got that. I heard them loud and clear. Yeah. But what was the literature that you loved? 
Well, I, you know, I'm a real nerd. So even <laughs> or, yeah. you know, I was a nerd from a young age and I just fell in love when I was really young with pretty cano- again, canonical English literature. So I loved Chaucer. I loved John mm. Donne. Yeah. I still, you know, Milton. And then, of course, the romantic poets, most obviously John Keats, but also William Blake and Percy Shelley. Those have been the writers that have been the most important to me. Mm-hmm. So it'd be the literature that you loved was was all in this sort of general stream, a lot of it coming out of Britain, but you feeling like uh, there was something kind of, um, I don't know what the right word is, artificial or or that there was a disconnect between you and who you were and the people who maybe were supposed to identify the most with that kind of literature. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I also always felt like I was being introduced to that culture as an interloper, you know, mm-hmm. maybe best as an investigator, a kind of outside investigator, yeah. but, but never with a sense that it was my birthright or my inheritance or that it belonged to me in any kind of deep and meaningful way, which is, I think, which was very different from the experience of a lot of the kids that I went to school with, you know, who were very, the school I went to was sort of very waspy and, you know, again, traditional. And so there was certainly a sense that this kind of literature and this kind of culture was the birthright and the inheritance of, of the student population. Yeah, I, it's so fascinating. And it puts you in such a, an interesting position with respect to it, because a lot of those people, a lot of the classmates that probably you felt at least like they did properly inherit this or this literature did belong to them, probably didn't like it. Yeah, that's I mean, I think that's very true. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. And that's yeah. something that I kind of talk about in the book is that in a strange way, when you feel like an outsider in your immediate environment, which I certainly did, it's very easy to get attracted to a, a kind of obscure or arcane or again, slightly nerdy set of interests that pull you apart from your peers, but that also might pull you into a realm of thinking and feeling and reading that is actually quite traditional. You know, there's nothing particularly subversive about being interested in John Donne. You know, there's nothing particularly subversive about being um, a student who's really good at English. And so I don't necessarily think that my cultivation of those interests was rebellious in any way, but it gave me an out, you know, Mm. it gave me a way to feel as though there was more to life than, you know, being 14 and surrounded by blonde chicks. Yeah. Did you ever see the movie Breaking Away? Oh, my God. You just, um, <laughs> just <one of> my... <laughs> um, that is one of my favorite movies. I will put that on my top 10 list. Okay, because we talked before and I had mentioned uh, I brought up Professor James Chandler of the University of Chicago. And I've talked about this on the podcast before, but when I took his class in romanticism when I was an undergrad, he said something to me that kind of changed my life, really, but changed the way I looked at literature, for sure. And he was talking about Keats. And he said, you know, if you've seen the movie Breaking Away, and I'll just remind people who, who maybe don't remember, there's a a boy who's living in kind of a, a college town that's divided between uh, the it's like a town and gown situation where it's a lot of white collar workers like his father. And then there are all of these kids who go to the university also in this town. And so he's kind of on the outside looking in at these intellectuals and he decides to kind of leapfrog over them. He learns Italian and he starts wearing Italian clothes. He becomes a a, a bicycle racer and he he 
He starts speaking Italian to his parents and playing opera and all of the stuff. And Chandler, Professor Chandler had said during class, he said, you know, this is kind of what Keats did. He was, uh, you know, he was a cockney. He was an outsider to this group of poets. And he decided that he wasn't he wasn't going to write working class poetry. He was just going to be the best poet uh, and leapfrog all of these critics and all of these people who kind of implied that he wasn't qualified or he wasn't capable of doing it. And I'm wondering, I guess that begs the question, is part of your attraction to Keats because of his personal life story and how it might have resonated with you? You know, it's funny because in some ways Keats was very much an outsider. And as you said, you know, he was he was lumped in with a group of poets and writers that were referred to in the mainstream press as the Cockney School of Poetry, which is a, a description that has a really strong class inflection to it. So mm-hmm. the idea was that Keats was working class, which is true. I mean, he was kind of, you know, lower middle class, born born lower middle class, um, that Keats was working class, that he was uneducated because he hadn't received a university education. He very famously could not read Greek, although he could read Latin, and that set him at a distance from classical literature, which, mm-hmm. of course, as a poet in the 19th century, you were supposed to know front to back in the, in the original language. So in some ways, he was an outsider. But in another sense, he did find a community of like-minded writers right, and, right. and so and was very supported by those people. So, you know, I think that he's somebody who made his own way in the world to great effect. And even though, the, again, in the mainstream press, his writing was always pilloried and he was pilloried in very, very personal terms. And again, terms that had a very strong um, kind of completely undisguised class inflection to them. He did find a way to be an insider within his own community. But, um, you know, as for whether or not I connected with that aspect of Keats's biography, I think, I think, yes, I think I must have in some subconscious way. I think, Keats always felt as though he didn't belong. And I always, you know, liked that too when I was younger. And I also kind of didn't belong. You know, I mean, the the people that I went to school with and that I was surrounded by had very, very different lives and very, very different backgrounds than I did, you Mm, know? Right. Yeah. I mean, they didn't come home and speak a foreign language, right? They didn't, um, you know, have to like, um, you know, have go through airport security and have their dad pulled over every time and his bag searched every time, you know, which I did. So right. in that sense, I certainly felt like an outsider in the same way that Keats did, but it wasn't so much about class. It was more about ethnic background, ethnic and national background, you know, but I think the thing that drew me the most to Keats besides his sort of marginal status in the world of letters was just that he's incredibly lovable. Mm. <laughs> you know, my, yeah. It's like the hero of Breaking Away, whose name I'm desperately trying to remember. Um, <laughs> but he's very, very lovable and very endearing. And and a lot of Keats scholars have a relationship to Keats that feels much more intimate than the relationships that they might have to other writers, partly for that reason that you just think, man, I would have loved to have known this person. He seems like such a mensch. So some of it is just a kind of the personal charisma that Keats has that was so strong that it lasts on the page 200 years later is probably what drew me to him more than anything. Do you think that the appeal of Keats comes from the letters as much as his poetry? He comes across in the letters as so earnest and so uh, endearing, I think. Uh, Was that something that drew you to Keats or are we just talking about the poetry here? Well, I encountered the letters before I encountered the poems. Mm, So mm -hmm. for sure. And I think that most people 
would tell you that the keats of the letters is what really enchants them into the world of Keats's poetry and, yeah. and makes them Keats converts. And it's true because he is in his letters, uh, you know, of which there are many, given the fact that he died so young um, because he was a prolific letter writer. But, you know, in the letters, he comes across not just as, you know, very lovable and very endearing and very sweet and very earnest, but also just as, you know, sometimes kind of bitchy and mean and yeah. insecure and very, very funny and very um, well, well-meaning, you know, and sometimes he has these crises of self-confidence and other times he's just absolutely, you know, um, completely enraptured with the possibility that he's as good a writer as any that's existed in the English language. And so in that sense, he's like all of us and the letters record him in the fullness of his personality. So, yeah, you know, you right. see him vulnerable you see him being arrogant you see him being um depressed and melancholy as you see you see everything and so when you have that full of picture of somebody and there are very few writers who we have that full and intimate a picture of in yeah. english history anyway it's easy to become really smitten with them and you know to feel as though they are your your friend or your your buddy in some way yeah and you see him and it's kind of a young person's uh it's kind of a young person's style in some ways, but you see him uh, wrestling with ideas and so devoted to poetry. Yeah. Yeah. Very, I mean, very devoted to poetry and also very aware of the fact that poetry is something you have to work really hard at. Yeah. So one of the things that I find moving and, you know, just impressive about the letters, given that, as you say, they're written by somebody who's so young, is he had a sense of poetry as a labor that you had to return to again and again and again until you got better at it. So a lot of times he'll talk about doing a poem as a kind of endurance, like writing a poem as a kind of endurance test or an experiment or as an opportunity to learn something so that the next thing that he writes will be better. So I think he saw himself as undergoing a very rigorous training in the art of poetry. And that's something that is very compelling to me, too. You know, that idea that you really have to work hard at at this thing in order to make that thing seem utterly effortless when it ends up on the page. Right. So we're right on the edge of me asking you about your book, but I just want to close <laughs> off one more thing about your biography. Was there someone or something or some moment where you felt like you had permission to go ahead and and become a scholar in this in this type of literature? I don't think that there was any particular moment. I think that I just sort of bumbled along and did mm what I wanted to do. And I recognized pretty early on that, you know, I was not very good at math, but I was pretty good at English. And so it seemed like something I could do. And I kind of just fell into doing it in a more regular way. Yeah. And then as soon as I realized that there was such a thing as a university professor, I thought, well, that sounds like a really good gig. Yeah. And so I'm interested in that. I mean, like Keats, interestingly enough, like Keats, I had aspirations to become a doctor, but I was so intimidated by chemistry in high school that I thought I'll never survive chemistry at a college level. So mm. that that was not in the cards. But Keats also trained as a doctor and yeah. then gave it for poetry. So that's another connection. But that connection didn't dawn on me until much later in life when I realized like, oh, I also, you know, almost got into that track and then didn't. Right. Okay. So let's turn to the book. Uh, what made you decide to write a book about Keats's odes? Uh, what, I, I mean, there've been a lot of books about Keats. What did you have to contribute that hadn't been explored before? Well, so, you know, the dirty truth of it is, is I actually didn't have a conscious intention to write this book. And oh. my editor, 
my editor at the University of Chicago Press then asked me to do it. And what I had a conscious intention to do was to write something in a more personal vein mm, that explored yeah. my yeah, that explored my relationship to canonical writers from a more autobiographical angle. So that was already percolating. And I had had that since I had just finished my second academic book. So I've written two academic monographs and I've edited an edition of a long poem by Percy Shelley. So all of my work has been very academic in nature. And I was kind of feeling like it was time to do something else or I felt the impulse to do something else, but it hadn't taken concrete shape yet. And then my editor effectively, you know, asked if I could, would be interested in writing something like this. And I said, yeah, sure. You know, and because we had the intention of the book coming out in time to correspond with the bicentenary of Keats's death, which is about a month away in February 23rd, 2021, I didn't have very long <laughs> to yeah, write it. So right. I had to hit the ground running. And fortunately, I was able to do that because of the fact that I've been thinking and writing about these poems for a very long time and teaching them for a very long time. So there was a set of, you know, um, just a set of thoughts that I had had about the poetry that I was able to access very quickly. So, you know, in a way, it just fell into my lap. I think what makes the work different is there have been a handful of kind of memoir type books written by people who are also thinking about Keats. So these very personal books about, you know, the writer's relationship to Keats and to Keats's poetry and to Keats's life. But all of those books have been written by men. Mm -hmm. And that's always sort of, you know, puzzled me because a lot of the most important scholarly work on Keats has been written by women. So it seemed as though there was a divide between you know, the kind of person that felt they were able to relate to Keats or attach to Keats in a personal way and and the kind of person that was perhaps more obligated to keep their relationship to Keats in in a much more formal register. So, um, you know, it it is, as far as I know, my, I mean, my book is, as far as I know, the first memoir or, you know, kind of critical text um, come memoir written by a woman about Keats. So, you know, that that is new. And so Mm. I hope that that is interesting to people. I hope that's exciting to people. Well, I was interested and excited as I read it. And and part of my interest and excitement was knowing how much it fit with this podcast and the listeners to it. I, I think listeners are going to really appreciate it in a way that they might not typically appreciate or or be able to access more academic driven work. I know that the, I've had other professors on who have talked about their works of scholarship, and it's a little bit, uh, it can be a little bit hard for the, uh, you know, someone outside of academia to access it because it feels a little bit like you're arriving late at a party and there's an ongoing conversation that you didn't hear the first half of or something. And and your book is not like that at all. Oh, thank you. It, it's clear that you uh, love the poems and you've been thinking about them very thoughtfully for a long time. And you have things that have kind of gathered along the way, uh, whether it's information about Keats or whether it's information about yourself or, uh, you know, anecdotes or stories or, or things that, things that fit in with the poems and help deepen our appreciation for the poems. So I would say the book works. I'm glad your editor is, uh, moving in that direction and moved you in that direction. Yeah, I think a lot of academics are are right now trying to find ways to incorporate a more personal voice into their writing for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned, you know, at a certain point, it starts to be depressing to feel as though you're only reaching a very, very small readership. And that if you 
try to write for a larger readership, that readership may be alienated mm. by the degree of expertise that you, you know, bring into your writing or by the ways in which you can't make that expertise accessible to others. So I have a lot of respect for for scholarship, quote unquote, proper. You know, I have a lot of respect for for academics and for academia, but I I do think that all critical writing needs to become less hermetic if it's going to have any kind of, you know, effect on the people that encounter it. So I am certainly trying to move more in that direction in my own work. Right. Okay, good. So you say uh, the book is a love story between me and Keats and not just Keats. So let's break that into two parts. So what is what do you mean by it's a love story between you and Keats? Well, it's really, you know, I wouldn't say that I have a crush on Keats. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably, that probably is not quite accurate, but I yeah. do have a tremendous amount of love for and tenderness toward Keats for yeah. the reasons that we were talking about earlier. I mean, I feel, and a lot of people who read a lot of Keats feel this way, I feel that I know him in a way that I don't feel I know many writers, either living or dead. You know, I mean, there's a way in which his letters, but also his poetry give you access to a, a character that is so, you know, familiar and um, that is so, that feels so alive, you know, that it feels as though you were just talking to him yesterday. It's hard to believe he's been dead for 200 years. So I feel a closeness to Keats that is to me remarkable. And yeah. it's described that closeness as love. You know, that's the kind of attachment that it is that I want to, I'm always happy to see him, you know, I'm always happy to be in the presence of Keats. I think about Keats a lot. I, um, you know, feel excited, continue to feel excited by Keats, even though I've been reading his poetry for as long as I have. So it's a very intense attachment that I have to him as a writer, but also as a human being. So in that sense, it's a love story, but it's also, I, I think, in a larger sense, a story about what it means to have poetry change your life. And I yeah. think that we changed by works of art as dramatically and in some cases as traumatically as we're changed by our relationships with other people. So, you know, in, in describing in each of the essays that make up the book, my thoughts about these poems and, you know, these poems I've been thinking about for years and years, I'm, I'm trying to stage that kind of relationship, you know, the kind of relationship to a work of art that could change your life or make you live your life differently. Mm. So, that sense of sustained attention to and sustained and committed attention is to me a pretty good description of what love is, you know, or, or how we act toward the things that we love on a good day. But of course, you know, <laughs> sometimes when we love things or people, we also behave really poorly towards them as well. So, um, you know, I think the whole book tries to explore these various aspects of love and these various aspects of intimate attachment from different angles. Yeah. And you say at one point that as you were reading old poetry, that you began to hope that the past might need you as much as you needed it. Uh, what did you mean by that? Um, you know, that thought actually came to me when I was in college and I decided that I would take a creative writing class, even though I had never had any interest in being a, a, a poet myself. Mm -hmm. I decided to take a class in poetry just to sort of see, you know, <laughs> how it's done from the inside and, you know, to see, I guess, how hard it is, right? Because it always struck me as very difficult to write poetry. And I think it's extremely difficult to write good poetry. So I thought I would take this class and, and see, you know, what was what. And I just remember thinking, God, you know, I'm terrible at this, but also so are most people, you know, most 
poetry is where most poetry is really bad. Oh boy, you know, you should listen to our episode. We have an episode called Bad Poetry, uh, in which I confess my uh, attempt to write a Keatsian poem at a young age, and I compare it with some of the worst poetry that's ever been written in the history of literature. I mean, so, I, would love, I would love to see your, I would love to see your Keatsian poem. You know, yeah. the thing, it's, I mean, it's really hard to write a good poem. I think it's much easier to write a kind of passable novel, you yeah. know? Yeah. I mean, if I'm reading a bad novel, and it's like that, that old saw about pizza, even when it's bad, it's still pretty good. That's kind of what I think about novels. You know, they're always right, more right. entertaining. They right. pass the time. That's We have the phenomenon of airport <laughs> novels, but not the phenomenon of airport poetry. Yeah, because you know, it won't mean anything if you're, you know, on the plane. So, yeah, I had that thought when I was in college and I was thinking, God, this is terrible, you know, and I realized with full force the divide between my creative capacities, which are basically nil and my critical capacities, which I have a certain degree of faith in. So, you know, I, I think what I was trying to say there is I I felt in reading poetry and thinking about poetry as a scholar, a certain kind of intellectual confidence that enabled me to adopt this as a career mm. and to feel as though somebody has something to learn from reading my scholarship and the this kind of stuff that I write about, the literature that I write about, is, is mostly well served by my attention to it. Right. You know? right. I mean, I wouldn't do this, I wouldn't be a professor if I didn't feel like the literature that I write about is well served by what I do. Right. So, and yeah. so when we're talking about students who are required to take these courses and to read these things, uh, if they have a bad experience, they the poems end up just being inert or uh, irritating or something that they avoid or or dismiss. And instead, with someone like you who can champion them or or advocate for them or just interpret them in the right way, that you're bringing back to life the energy and the the spirit that should come out of poetry like that. You know, I hope so. In the second chapter of the book, I talk about this open letter that um, four Columbia University students wrote about the core curriculum at Columbia, which is a curriculum that I've taught because my mm -hmm. first job was at Columbia. And they write about the experience of a student who, in a class on Ovid's Metamorphoses, felt very, very upset by the fact that the teacher only wanted to focus on the aesthetic beauty of the poems um, of Ovid's Metamorphoses and not on the fact that the metamorphoses are dominated by scenes of sexual violence. Hmm. And um, the, the, in the letter, they describe the student going to talk to the professor about this and the professor brushing the student off, you know, and saying, well, you know, th that's not really what interests me or that's not a valuable contribution or whatever. And then the student, of course, as you might expect, becomes, you know, unwilling to talk in class, kind of detaches from the classroom experience, sits in the back, doesn't raise her hand, you know, and, right. and basically is shut out of the discussion. And when I read that letter, it's not that I was surprised, but I was just so, as a teacher, I was so enraged mm -hmm. by it. Mm -hmm. That kind of, I mean, you know, leaving aside the fact that Ovid's Metamorphoses, and I talk about this in the chapter, is quite obviously a, a long poem about sexual violence. I mean, it's not, you don't have to impose that reading on the poem. I mean, it's explicitly what it's about. You know, yeah. it just seems any teacher who would shut down a student or dismiss an interpretation or suggest that a certain point of view wasn't 
wanted or warranted in class is doing such an incredible disservice, not just to the student, but also to the literature. Right. So, you know, if any, I mean, I'm always trying as a, as a teacher and as a professor to keep the classroom as open as possible to whatever anybody wants to bring into it. I think that that is an ethical obligation as well as a, as a pedagogical one. Right. And because it, it just seems so obvious that what that student was looking for was to deepen the experience of reading the poem and to deepen the understanding that everyone could have about the uh, about the poem. And the teacher was, in cutting that off, if you're cutting off the enthusiasm that people have for the what seems to be important to them and what will matter most to them, why would you take away the energy that the student's going to bring in into the classroom? And, you know, you're just, at that point, you might as well just be lecturing to a bunch of robots. Yeah, but that's what a lot of people want to do. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It's easier. It's much it's much easier. It's much easier to present yourself as the unassailable expert than it is to have your ideas challenged, you know. I mean, so but it's bad. I mean, it definitely is bad teaching. There's there's no question about it. And bad teaching kind of makes my blood boil. <laughs> yeah. So, when you were setting out to write this book, it it does have the feel of things that you've taught and mentioned in the classroom and learned along the way as you've uh, studied these poems and and written about these poems maybe in other formats or read other criticism or or essays about the poems. Were there things that you discovered that you didn't know whether it's about Keats or about the the poems or or about yourself? Or was this your chance to kind of summarize and get into print the things that you had long been thinking about these poems? I think it was certainly a chance to summarize thoughts that I had had or things that I had read as a way of, you know, kind of initiating a discussion of each poem. But Mm -hmm. then as I started writing, one of the things that is so, again, remarkable to me about Keats is that his you can always discover something new reading the poems because they're so intricately put together. So it's as though every time you discover a kind of a new joint or a new turn or a new, um, a new way that things are fit together, or you understand that the reason that he chose this word to rhyme with that word instead of another word was to suggest a certain kind of effect. And so I wouldn't say that you forget the poems when they're not in front of you, but you do always come to them anew. They have that sense of perpetual freshness about them. Mm -hmm. So as I was writing, I would find myself having to forget or leave behind things that I had always thought to be true about the poems because I suddenly realized that actually something completely different was at work. And I, I am really enamored of that process of being forced to relinquish what you thought you knew about a work of literature that's very close to you. So um, that that sense of perpetual discovery certainly animated the writing of the book. Right. Now, I don't mean to put you on the spot because Uh-oh. this was not a question that I and I have a surprise bonus question for you where, where I will put you on the spot. But this is one uh, I probably should have previewed for you in advance. And if the answer is you just cannot answer the question, that's fine, too. But I'm wondering, do you have a, a favorite among the odes or is there one that resonates with you in particular? Yeah, my favorite of the odes is Ode to Psyche. And I would mm, actually, I right. would go out so far on a limb to say that it may be my my favorite poem, you know. Favorite poem, yeah. And I have a student who came to me and said, you know, I think it's so wonderful that when you teach this poem, you tell us it's your favorite poem. And I thought, oh, yes, I do do that. And he said, I think it's so wonderful that when you read it out loud, you cry. And I thought, 
I cry when I read this <laughs> out loud <laughs> because I hadn't been aware of that at all. And so I realized that apparently when I've been reading this poem aloud to my students, I've been choking up or tearing up slightly in a way that's visible to them, even though it was not visible to me. Right. And what is it? I, I think I might have to do a whole episode now on uh, the Ode to Psyche. What, what, at what point do you find yourself getting emotional? It really, I, that kind of thing makes me cry from the word go, or at least, you know, I think it makes me cry from the word go since I'm not aware of having been crying in public when I've been reading the poem aloud. But I, I think as soon uh, as you start the in, sort of encanting the language of Keats and you start connecting into the emotional world of that poem, you're filled with a sense of sacredness that is akin to walking into a church. And that's a probably apt comparison because one of the things Keats is trying to do in that poem is imagine an idea of the sacred that is distinct from any kind of religious belief. So I think that there is a sense of solemnity and, and yeah, let's say a sense of solemnity about that poem that I find very moving. And then it's a love poem, you know, it's a poem about discovering this mythological figures, Cupid and Psyche lying together on the grass. They've ostensibly just been, you know, having sex. And so now they're sleeping side by side. And the, the description of the way that their bodies are sort of breathing together and the way that they're almost touching, but not quite touching. I just find it really, really precise and beautiful. So that, oh, I, you know, it, the poem casts a spell on me and I, and I evidently am helpless to resist it. Mm. You know, it's funny that you chose that one because as I was looking through the odes and, and reading about them and the critical reception to them, that one had stood out as one of the overlooked of, of the mm -hmm. odes. And I read one uh, argument by Ayumi Mizokoshi, who said that early audiences didn't support the Ode to Psyche because it turned out to be too reflexive and internalized to be enjoyed as a mythological picture. And I wonder if people were just looking for something that it wasn't and kind of missing what it actually was. Yeah, and also it doesn't have, it doesn't advertise itself as a great poem the way that Ode on a Grecian Urn does or the mm -hmm. way that it does. You know, those are much more compact and... Um, I don't want to say slick because they're not slick, but they're much more compact and they're much more finely tuned than Ode to Psyche, which is slightly meandering and <laughs> yeah. where, where exactly is this going? But that's one of the things that I like about it. I think the poem has a lot of it has a lot of vulnerability. And yeah. I admire that Keats was able to register that vulnerability on the page and wasn't tempted to revise it in any substantial way. So it doesn't feel as watertight as some of the other poems. Mm, and that's right. the thing that, that makes me have as much affection for it as I do. Right. Like to, to Autumn is often viewed as a perfect, almost bulletproof kind of poem. And sometimes that's praised and sometimes people find that that puts them off a little bit from it. Yeah. And, you know, bulletproof is really an apt word because in the book, I relate the poem to an event that happened right before Keats wrote it, namely the Peterloo Massacre, which was a, a massacre of innocent protesters in Manchester in mm. 1818. And Keats was very aware of that event. Everyone was very aware of that event. Percy Shelley wrote his famous poem, The Mask of Anarchy, about about that. 
And a lot of people have commented on the fact that To Autumn, although it's written in the wake of those events, doesn't seem to have any explicitly political content at all. So people sometimes take it as a gesture of escapism from contemporary political history. And so in the in the book, I try to think about what that would mean. And I end up deciding that the instead of the poem having um, instead of the poem seeking to praise its own perfection, it actually thinks of its perfection as a kind of tragedy, because the fact of it is terrible things happen all the time. And yet beauty persists in the world. Right. Mm, and mm-hmm. we, we, we are fully aware of all the horrible things that are going on all around us that are sometimes happening to us that we are sometimes implicated in. And yet we're still able to find a poem beautiful or to find, you know, the sight of a tree beautiful. And so I think that the poem is very um, conflicted about that impulse in, in human beings to continue to love the world, even when the world seems very unlovable. So, yeah, I mean, it is it is perfect, but I don't think that it's proud of being a perfect poem. Right. And boy, if we ever needed someone to uh, explain for us why it's still relevant to read poetry in 2020 and 2021, I think you just sort of nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so I, I do think that Ode to Psyche might have been T.S. Eliot's favorite among the odes. Oh, my gosh, really? I've never heard that before. Yeah. I, I, I'll have to track that down, but I, I'm pretty sure that that's, uh, that's something he had said. Okay, so we have we are now up to the surprise bonus question. <laughs> and let me uh, say that we've kind of been getting toward it uh, when we talked about Keats's background and with your description just now of the Peterloo Massacre. But what I want to fill in for the listeners is that in your introduction to the book, you had connected uh, this uh, idea with Shaw, which to me was very thought-provoking. And it was his suggestion that there was an affinity between Keats's poetry and the ideas of Karl Marx. Yeah. And it made me think that had Keats not died so young, their lives would have overlapped. He would have been 53 when the Communist Manifesto came out. Yeah. Okay, so here's the question. After, are you ready? Yeah, okay. <laughs> as ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> After falling asleep in the pleasant shade of a plum tree on a summer's day, you awake from some fantastic dreams to find that a literary genie has appeared. She is a kind-hearted spirit who smiles warmly and tells you that she can grant you one wish, except she can only offer you a very limited choice you will be permitted to spend an afternoon with one historical figure. Either you can meet with the 25-year-old Keats to tell him about Karl Marx and his writings and ask him what he thinks, or you can meet with Karl Marx to ask him all the questions you want about Keats and his poetry. You and your companion will be supplied with a nice meal and your beverage of choice as you speak, and then you'll return to the present day. Do either of these meetings appeal to you and why or why not? Both of them appeal to me greatly. Because Keats and Marx are probably my two favorite writers. Oh, and, wow. Okay, great. Yeah. And I and I don't just, I mean, I really mean that about Marx, that I don't just appreciate Marx as an intellectual or, you know, as a scientist, yeah. but also as a writer. I mean, he's right. very extraordinary. And of course, Marx was very, very, very fond, that even that word is too weak, but very fond of Shakespeare and also of Percy Shelley. So, you know, he was a very literary man. Mm, uh And, you know, I don't actually know if there's a record of Marx having read Keats, but I think that they had they met, you know, I think that they probably would have hit it off like gangbusters. I mean, everyone at Keats kind of hit it off (laughs) with Keats. Yeah. 
a very fun person to be around. So if I had to make the choice, it's very, very hard. I, I think, unsurprisingly, I would have to choose to meet the 25-year-old Keats. Yeah. Because there's so much more of Marx. You know, he lived a much longer time. He wrote much more than Keats did. And I and I kind of feel as though they're not, you know, I don't feel as though there are many unanswered questions in Marx's work. I actually think that what's there is enough for everyone to go on if they're inclined to go on it. But with Keats, there's, I, I would be very interested to know if he intended to keep writing poetry, yeah. right? he died or when he started dying, when he fell ill for the last time, he had already been thinking about quitting poetry and doing something that would make him more money. So I, I'm always sort of curious, and I think a lot of people have asked this question, you know, would Keats have, have continued writing or would he have composed to autumn the greatest poem in one of the greatest yeah. poems? English language and called it a day, right? Yeah. And decided that he had more to bring the world. I mean, that was something that really started that that notion of what poetry can or can't bring to the world was something that really troubled him. I, I don't want to say later in life, because that makes it sound as though he lived to a ripe old age, which of course he didn't. But he was very concerned that poetry didn't really help anyone, that it didn't make anyone healthier or happier, that it wasn't a tool for justice. And that began to weigh on him quite heavily. So I would want to know, you know, what what would you have done? You want to keep writing? Would you have actually gone and used your medical degree or your medical training? Or would you have become a lawyer, which was something he was kind of toying with? So I think it would have to be Keats. Do you think if you told him about Karl Marx and and laid out Karl Marx's arguments and, and observations that it would have resonated with Keats, it might have put him on a, a new path? Uh, I mean, absolutely. And that's sort of what George yeah. Bernard saying in that essay, right? You know, so Shaw's talking about a poem, a Keats poem called Isabella or the pot of basil. And he says, oh, you know, the stuff in here wouldn't be out of place in capital. And that if Keats had lived, he probably would have turned into a Bolshevik, right? Yeah, That's the right. That, that Shaw uses. And it, it's such a bold and completely out of left field thing to say, but I think it's absolutely accurate. And so Keats, you know, the, we sort of started this conversation by talking about the circle that Keats ran in, the Cockney School of Poetry circle. And that circle was very, very politically left wing, to use a contemporary expression, it was full of radicals. And that's partly why Keats attracted as much negative attention as he did, is because he was associated with this group of, of radical writers. Yeah. So I think absolutely, I think that, you know, he would very quickly understand Marx's ideas. I think that he would very quickly sign on to them. Mm -hmm. He was a person who was painfully preoccupied by injustice during his lifetime. And so, yeah, I think absolutely. I think he would have been thrilled, delighted, you know. I mean, there's a, this amazing description of Keats reading the poet Edmund Spencer for the first time and being so excited that he jumps off the bench you know, because <laughs> he can't he can't contain himself. Not a response that most people would have to Edmund Spencer, but you know, he jumps off the bench and he's so excited. And he and the the person who ha who writes this description of Keats, you know, describes Keats as having, you know, just his like as though his whole body is filled with excitement for good poetry. And I think that if you told Keats about Marx, he would have a similar reaction. He would kind of jump into the air and be overwhelmed by the profundity of of Marx's ideas. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I think you've answered my next question, which was going to be, what if I told you that the condition was that you would be required to write an essay or a book about the discussion that you had 
Uh, it sounds like Keats would, would still be an amazing book to write, although having a chance to interview Marx about Keats would, I think, be a pretty good book, too. Yeah, no, that that one would also work. <laughs> yeah. Would also work. <laughs> I like the idea of staging these conversations between writers that have never met one another and then sort of seeing, you know, imagining what that conversation would be like. Yeah. That's a cool idea. Yeah. Okay, well, let's leave things there. The book is called Keats's Odes, A Lover's Discourse, published by the University of Chicago Press. Anna Hedner-Sessian, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Oh, well, thank you so much. This was so fun. Mm, there we go. Wasn't that great? My thanks to Anna Hedner-Sessian for joining me. We're going to dig into that great poem, Ode to Psyche. Next time, we will do some careful reading. But you know how things go when carefulness turns into carelessness. It's not because we don't care. It's because we care too much. And we kind of don't care, too. It's kind of both. Our carelessness has limits. But who cares about that? We are teamed up with LitHub Radio and the good folks at The Podglomerate. You can learn more about them and their other shows at www.thepodglomerate.com. Learn more about this show at historyofliterature.com and help the show at patreon.com slash literature and historyofliterature.com slash shop. Thank you very much for all those who have signed up to help us in the past. You are truly angels on earth. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Pod Glomer, a sonic universe.